Have you guys ever heard of a, an author named Douglas Copeland? He, he coined the phrase Generation X, and he wrote a, a novel about it. It was his first book, and um, I've read a lot of his books, and recently I reread his book called Girlfriend in a Coma, uh, and in that book he tells a story of this girl named Karen. She's a high school senior, and she uh, inexplicably goes into a coma uh, one evening after spending time with her friends, and now she's in a coma for for 18 years, and without any explanation, she she wakes up from her coma, and which you know she goes into a coma in 1979. She wakes up in 1997, and what she finds is a very it's a very different world, right? Uh, a lot happened between 1979 and 1997. Um, you know the the people that are there, her friends from high school, uh, her parents. They're, they're the same, but now they're older and, you know, maybe they didn't reach the goals and ambitions that they had for their lives. Uh, but, but, but the technology and the architecture and the, the cars and the food and so many things are, are all different. And so the book is talking about how she's just trying to process the, this new, different world. And, and as I finished that book yesterday, I was thinking about when, when we follow Jesus, when we begin to follow Jesus, we, we find ourselves in a kind of a similar place that the world is the same. We, we've started to follow Jesus. The world doesn't change. Uh, the people don't change. We are the ones who, who change. Uh, and now everything is different as as we follow Jesus, we've been born again. Jesus has awakened us into this new life, and everything looks different now. And, and as we've been walking through the book of Acts, uh, we have seen uh, that, that a, a big part of following Jesus is being sent on his mission, that we go with the good news of Jesus. So every one of us, it could be me, I'm a pastor, but we have people who are contractors and we have people who are stay-at-home parents and, uh, and police officers and it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're in school or if you're retired. Each one of us, if we're following Jesus, we're all called to take the message of Jesus into every part of our lives, to the people that are in our lives. So the, the trick is, or not the trick, but the the question that always that we have is, well, how do we do it? What does it look like? Uh, and, and I love that in the book of Acts, we've seen so many different examples of, of what this looks like, not necessarily a how-to. Uh, it's not a manual of, well, first you knock on the door, and then you tell a funny joke, and then you get people to like you. Um, it's, it's not really the, a how-to manual of how to take the love of Jesus to people, but it's definitely giving us the principle that we're all called to do this. So we're looking at a passage today in Acts 17 that I think is one of the best pictures of, of what it looks like when we are awakened uh, to go on Jesus' mission, when our heart is stirred up to follow Jesus on his mission and to see the world and the people who live in it through the eyes of Jesus. So we're going to read Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And, uh, and, and as we're looking at this, we're going to 
We're going to break it up into a few different pieces, but, but we could say that following Jesus on his mission means that we go, it means that we see, it means that we feel, and it means that we do. Following Jesus means we go, we see, we feel, and we do. So let's read Acts 17, uh, verses, beginning of verse 16. It'll be up on the screen, and it's also on page 926 and 927 in the Bibles back there. Acts 17, beginning in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean." Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this... I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is God's word. Let's pray once more. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word now. We we acknowledge that we have a great need right now to not just to learn something new, but to be transformed by your word that is alive and active Holy Spirit, we pray that you would work through the proclamation of your word, that you would correct us, that you would rebuke us, that you would instruct us, that you would encourage us, and you would show us what is true and good. 
I pray for, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that you would show us, you would stir us to be on your mission, Jesus, and you'd show us the ways that we can do that. And for those of us who are not your followers, that we would hear the good news of Jesus today and believe. We ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, the first marker of being on Jesus' mission means that we go. And that might seem pretty self-explanatory, but but it's helpful to remember this, that as followers of Jesus, we go. That's the whole book of Acts, right? Uh, Before Jesus ascends into heaven, he says in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, right? That's where we are, but into Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So from the beginning of the church of Jesus, he has made it clear, you're going to go. You're going, you're sent on my mission. So, so when you begin to follow Jesus, you wake up to the reality that, that you are, that part of your, your new identity in Jesus is to be someone who goes to people, to other people with the good news of Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he's done. You are a witness of those things. So you don't wait for them to come to you, you go to them. Now that's just, we hear that, okay, I acknowledge that, and, and the church, we send out people to do that, right? <laughs> it's like, y- yes, you are those people. <laughs> we don't, we send missionaries to other countries and to other cities, and we plant churches, but you are also, you, each one of you who are here today, if you follow Jesus, you are to go on Jesus' mission. Now, this is this picture that we get in Acts 17 is so helpful to show the, the kind of mindset, right? So, Paul is in the city of Athens. He has been chased out of Thessalonica, the last city he was in. He is there waiting for, Paul, uh, for Silas and Timothy, his, his uh, team, to join him because they, they didn't have to leave. So, he's just sort of waiting around for them. To show up, and and if you know anything about the history of Athens, it's this really significant city. It was the the crown jewel of the Greek Empire, and even 500 years later, in the Roman Empire, it still is like the cultural and intellectual capital. Uh, it was the city of Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. It was the birthplace of of our Western idea of what democracy is. I mean, there was art, there was literature, there's philosophy. All these things were were birthed in this city of Athens. So so Paul could just be there. Uh, He could just enjoy some downtime, maybe see the sights, maybe get a little R&R because every time we read about Paul, he's getting beaten within an inch of his life. So maybe he could just, you know, recuperate from his injuries like you know, a week ago I had large rocks thrown at me until people thought I was dead. Maybe I could just breathe in the, uh, the, the, the air here and just relax. Um, but, but we see for Paul, he doesn't, he doesn't take a break as he's waiting for Silas and Timothy to show up. He keeps on going on Jesus' mission. So first, we see in verse 17, he goes to the synagogue. He reasons with the people in the synagogue. And we've seen him do this in other cities. Uh, Paul says, 
to the people who, who are either Jewish and they worship the God of Israel or they're, they're Gentiles who are interested in the Jewish God. He goes there and says, look, you know, you've been studying and worshiping the God of, of Israel. You've read about him in the Old Testament. You've followed his law. You've worshiped him in the way that he's called you to. But I want to tell you about the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the, he's the answer, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And so Paul would go into the synagogues and teach the people there. He was usually invited to say, here's what you have been waiting for. Jesus is who you have been waiting for. And so in, in many ways, we could, we could think about a synagogue in, in this time period as like a church today, a church you know, there's churches all over town, there's churches all over the U.S., North America, um, and it's important to realize that there's a lot of people who go to church, even regularly, that don't know who Jesus is. They don't know who he is, they don't know what he's done for them. Uh, religion can often be just like a culture that you exist in, and and so... It's important for us to know that as we go on Jesus' mission, part of that can happen within our church community so that um, we want to hear the gospel continually proclaimed and sung about and displayed through, through our worship together. And when we're out together, when we gather together in our homes and we're spending time together, that the gospel is proclaimed again and again and displayed through our love and our care and our service toward one another because there are, you, you hear these stories sometimes of I, I we have a, a dear friend of ours who you know we went to church with her for several years she was just baptized last year because she finally understood the gospel and this is somebody who's been going to church for for 20 years in good churches that that preach the gospel and, and she finally, her eyes were open to who Jesus is and, and that he was her savior. And her life is different. Even though we would say, you know, she was a great person, nice person, raised good kids, has a solid marriage. But, but God saved her through the continual proclamation of the gospel in a church. So, so we even... When you're coming together today and you're coming together with our gospel community, you're spending time, take the gospel to people. Bring the gospel to people. Don't just assume that they know everything about who Jesus is and what he's done for them. So Paul takes the gospel into the synagogue, but he also takes the gospel outside of the the place of worship. He goes into the marketplace in verse 17, he takes the message of Jesus into the, into the public space. It's called the Agora, uh, and, uh, and, and it's translated marketplace, but that just makes us think of like an out, you know, like a farmer's market, but it's so much more than that. Um, for us to understand what the Agora was, uh, it was where temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. That was the, the, the Agora in the Greek culture. So, so for us, you know, think of if there was such a place where you could combine, you know, a university, a shopping mall, um, 
City Hall, a cathedral, Wall Street, Google, Amazon, Apple, like those companies, Silicon Valley, uh, the Museum of Modern Art, and a sports stadium. You just kind of put them all in the same place. Like that was the agora, the marketplace. And, and the, the idea is that everything is happening here. It's the center of culture. It's the center of activity. People aren't at home on their computers. It does, that technology doesn't exist. So if you want to hear the news, you go to the marketplace. If you want to buy something, you go to the marketplace. You don't get free two-day shipping. Everything is happening here in the marketplace. And Paul goes right into the middle of this busy public place and he begins to share the message of Jesus. So, so here's a key thing for us to see, that the gospel of Jesus, the message of Jesus, it's not just a personal and a private thing. The gospel of Jesus is a public thing. It's a public thing. And, and what we kind of are seeing, yeah, I think it's true in our culture that, that people are usually okay with a private faith, but a public proclamation of our faith, of what we believe as, as followers of Jesus, you're going to get resistance to that. But, but here's what we need to remember. The life of Jesus was public. The death of Jesus was public. And the resurrection of Jesus was public. Those things didn't happen in private. They didn't happen in secret They happened in public. And so the message of Jesus is a public message. And Jesus says, you are witnesses. So all of you are witnesses to what Jesus did through his life, death, and resurrection in public, on display for all to see. Now, I can imagine you're thinking, well, how... Okay, easy for you to say, you're a pastor, your job is to tell people about Jesus, let's talk about this, uh, this message, and, and you know how to do it, and I'm, I'm not able, to, I don't feel like I can do that, I'm shy, it makes me uncomfortable, I don't like making other people uncomfortable, what if it gets confrontational, how do I even start that conversation, is that allowed at work, you know, my coworker uh, was talking to me the other day about the Bible, because he's, he's exploring the Christian faith and he's been talking to me about Jesus for a couple of years and, and somebody else came into our space and he just stopped talking and he was like, I don't want to make them uncomfortable and the guy was like, it's fine, don't, it's fine. You can keep talking about what you're talking about. And, and, but there's that idea that like, oh, I don't, you know, and, and this guy deferred to me and said, well, he's the professional. You know, he's, it's his job to talk about this kind of stuff. So, so he could talk about it, it's fine, but not me because I'm just a guy who has a job here. You know, those objections that you have and his, his concerns, uh, the questions, those are all valid things because it's difficult to share um, the message of Jesus in a public way, especially when in our minds it has to do with like knocking on someone's door or, you know, standing on a box with a megaphone, maybe. That's like, is that, the, is that what I'm supposed to do? Am I just supposed to start bellowing about Jesus? Is that what it means to be on his mission? Uh, so first of all, I'm not saying you should do that. I'm not calling you to do that. I've never spoken into a megaphone I mean, I have this little Britney Spears mic, but it's not a megaphone. Um, 
But so, so I'm not saying that, you know, next time you're at a meeting at work, you need to just stand up on the conference table and start talking about Jesus or go, you know, interrupt your professor and go up to the front of the class. Um, but here's, here's the idea. Here's the principle. When you go to work, when you're at school, when you're out in the community and you go to, to Arts Alive, remember that you are there as Jesus' representative. You are his witnesses in each of those places that you go. Jesus has sent you into that place to bring the good news of who he is and what he has done. So you're, wherever you go, you're, you're always going somewhere on his mission, not your mission. You don't get to separate those things like, you know, on these days I do my stuff and on these days I do Jesus stuff. It's always Jesus' mission that we should be on. Now, just a diagnostic, if you're like, okay, what is, where, where, does, where am I at in this, is to say, ask yourself, when is the last time you shared the gospel of Jesus with another person? And not here, like at work, or someone that you know from the community, someone you, your neighbor, like when is the last time, and you didn't just say, I go to church, <laughs> like you said, this is what the gospel of, this is what I believe, these are the things that I believe. That's a, that's a sobering question. So when is the last time, who is the person that I last shared the gospel of Jesus with? And your kids count, it's fine, you can count them if you want, but, but think outside of that as well, like, do any of my neighbors even have a clue what I believe about Jesus? I was talking with my barista, I guess you can call him that, at Dutch Brothers. They, they do it really fast. I don't know if you could call it a barista. It's, the machine does all the work. But anyway, Chris, uh, my barista there, he, we were just talking briefly, and, and he said, you know, when I started working here, I was so shy. I, I couldn't, I was painfully shy. I was the shyest person you could imagine. If you've been to Dutch Brothers, you know they're not shy. They like crawl into your car. They're so excited to get your coffee order. And, and I was like, well, how did, you, how did you do this? Like, how did you come to work here? And he said, you know, I just started working here and I started watching the other people who work here. And I just started, you know, taking risks and putting myself out there. And now I feel like I can just talk to anybody about anything. I talk to strangers all day about you know, their life for, for two minutes while, I, while we get their coffee ready. Now, his personality didn't change. He's still the same Chris that he was, but, but he did grow in this particular area. And, and I think if, if Chris can do that in order to work at Dutch Brothers, don't you think that Jesus can help you in order to fulfill his mission. In those places that you are uncomfortable and you think, I'm just not like that. It's not my personality to, to have those kinds of conversations. I'm not extroverted or I can't just go up and start talking to strangers. But don't you think that Jesus can help you in your weakness and in your inability and in your fear to share the gospel with someone, with your neighbor, with your friend, with your coworker? That's what we're called to do. To be on Jesus' mission means that we go. Next, and I think this is helpful for us to see this sequence, to be on Jesus' mission means that we 
that we see. Now, as Paul goes on Jesus' mission in Athens, what does he see? It says that while Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy, he saw that the city was full of idols. He sees that the city is full of idols. John Stott, he's a, a theologian, he says that uh, this can be interpreted that the, the city was smothered in idols or that it was a forest of idols. Now, on one hand, it's obvious to see what, what Paul sees. Like, you can go to Athens today. Like, I have friends who are on a tour uh, of Greece, and they're in Athens, uh, and they're going to see the same temples and statues, the remains of those things that Paul saw 2,000 years later. Like, it's still there. Many of things are still there. So you're like, yes, he saw that the city was full of idols. Like, any person who went there would see that. Uh, a Roman writer at the time, he said, in Athens, it's easier to find a god than a man. <laughs> it just, yes, of course Paul saw that it was full of idols. But remember what we said when we started, that, that when we follow Jesus, we don't just see things. We see things differently. We see things in a new way. And Luke, who writes the book of Acts, he's trying to tell us this through uh, the word that he uses for when, when he says that Paul saw that the city was full of idols. He doesn't just use the word for see that means to look at something. He uses a different word, theorio. I like that it has oreo in there. Um, theorio. I don't even know if that's how you say it, but, but that word means to observe or to understand. It's where we get our word theorize, right? To look at something and to try to get at what's underneath that thing, to see why it works or how it works. When we theorize, we're, we're taking something and we're just trying to figure out what is going on with this that I'm looking at. What does Paul see? What is he observing? What is he trying to understand? He sees not just statues, but he sees a city that is full of people who are being smothered by idolatry. Now, idolatry is a tricky word. What does idolatry mean? Does it just, you know, it's a jungle and there's people kneeling down before a little statue or something? We don't, you know, we would say, I don't, there's, I haven't never even seen an idol except in Athens when I went there on a tour. Like, what even is an idol? I don't kneel down in front of a statue. But an idol is not what, it's not the statue. The idol is what the statue represents, right? Each of these idols that Paul is seeing, they represent something. And, and Tim Keller He's done a lot of work on defining what idolatry is. He's been the most helpful for me in understanding uh, idolatry in like a contemporary way, not just like some stereotype. Uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller says, an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. An idol is something or anything that we look to that only God can give. So an idol is what gives you meaning. An idol is what you live for. An idol is, is what you, uh, if you lost it, you would, be, you, would be, you would be lost. You would be despairing because that thing no longer 
belongs to you. So who or what are you living for? Who or what are you living for? That's what you worship. That's your idol. And, and you, you may be uncomfortable with thinking, well, I, you, don't, you can't call it an idol. You can't call it worship. It's just really important to me. <laughs> who or what that thing is, that's, that's really your idol. What are you afraid to lose? What gives you hope? When you wake up in the morning, what are you thinking about? That's your idol. That's what you worship. That's what is most important to you. Now, the, the hard thing about uncovering our idols is that most of them are good things, right? Like marriage and family in itself is not a bad thing. And sex and pleasure itself are not, those aren't bad things. And uh, money and fame and ambition, those, those are not bad things in and of themselves or a career, having goals, right? Those things aren't bad things by themselves. But when we take those things that are good gifts that God gives to us and we make them the ultimate thing in our lives, they become an, they're an idol. They have taken the place of God. And when we put the value, the, the ultimate value on those things, the meaning and the worth and the who we are and our happiness and our meaning into those things, they will crush us. They will crush us. Paul sees a city that's smothered in idolatry. Again, Keller, he says, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. When have you made compromise in your life? When have you said, I would not normally do this, but I did in order to get this or to preserve this? or to keep this thing. That's idolatry. And that's enslavement. And that's what Paul sees as he looks at this city. It's not just a city that's full of statues. It's, it's full of things that people are looking to instead of Jesus. What he sees is a city full of people who are enslaved. And that's true today. We're on Jesus' mission. We're called to go and we're called to see and to look around and, be, and just look at our own lives and in the lives of our community and, and the broader community to say, like, what are the things that people are looking to for hope? What are the things that people are looking to to bring them meaning and value? And that's idolatry. And those are the idols that are in our city. So we listen to what people are talking about. We look at what people give themselves to. We, we, can, we perceive what people are afraid to lose, and then we know that's what the idols are in my own life and in the lives of the people around me. So we go on Jesus' mission. We see on Jesus' mission. Next, we, we feel. We feel. Paul, as he's going through Athens, he sees 
what's happening, right? He's perceiving the idolatry that exists, the enslavement. And it says in verse 16 that his spirit or his heart was provoked within him. So when we follow Jesus, we don't just see things differently. We also feel things differently. This is what Paul is experiencing. He's walking around. He sees this happening, and he was provoked. His heart was stirred. He was angry. He was grieved. He was deeply distressed at what he was seeing. And this Greek word uh, for provoked, it's this word called Paroxino, it's where we get our word paroxysm from. You probably never used that word, but it is an English word. But it means a, a seizure or a spasm or some kind of an outburst. And it's trying to, Luke's trying to give us this picture that, that Paul is experiencing this, this deep tension and conflict, and he is angry. He's furious. He's not just irritated. But he's angry at what he sees. Now, what's happening? Why does Paul feel this way? And we could say, well, Paul is a good monotheistic Jew. He knows there's only one God, so of course he's upset because there's these hundreds or thousands of other gods that are being worshipped. So he's just upset because he's a monotheist. Um, and, And that's true. We could say that's definitely part of what Paul is uh, is is ir- un- he's angry about or he's he's distressed about but in the in and we can see in the greek translation of the old testament uh when when israel worships other idols it says that god is provoked and it's the same greek word that god is angry when his people are worshiping or following other gods because he is a jealous god Greg sang that song, Future Past, right, this morning, and it said something about your, your heart's jealous fire, right? Is that one of the lyrics in the song? Your heart's jealous fire. Jealous, that's a word with some feeling, right? Feeling, jealousy, and, and this is where we can see the complexity of what we should feel as followers of Jesus, because we're reflecting or we're feeling the complexity of what God feels. When we see people enslaved to idols, enslaved to sin, we should feel the same kind of jealousy that God feels for them. And jealousy is another word that's hard to like, well, how can that be good? Like, how, how, how can jealousy be a good thing? Because I thought if you're jealous, it's just always wrong. But Here's a picture, like I'm married to Dallas, I love her, and if someone is trying to woo her away from me and to, to take her affection away from me, I will be jealous. I will be. And, and that's not wrong. <laughs> that's not a sin because she is my wife and I am her husband and she would be justified to feel the same for me if someone was trying to woo me away from her, to be jealous for one another. The same is true for my children. The same is true for you. You're, you're, you're my church, right? I'm, my role is to be a shepherd and to care for you and to protect you. And so if someone comes in here and is teaching you something that is not true, I will be jealous for you because I love you and I care about you. That's the complexity of love, that 
that it can be compassionate and it can be indignant and angry at the same time, right? Love is not simple, is it? This is the kind of thing that Paul is feeling here in this moment because his heart has been changed by Jesus. When he sees the things that these people in Athens are worshiping, he's angry and he's indignant But his anger is coming from, not from a place of intellectual superiority or self-righteousness. His anger is coming from a place of love and compassion. He knows these people are giving themselves to things that will never satisfy them. These people are, they're enslaved to things that will never give them joy or hope. It will, these things will ultimately crush them. He knows that God is being robbed of his glory and the honor that he deserves, but these people are also being robbed of a God who loves and cares for them. And Jesus is the only one who is worthy of the worship that all these idols are receiving. And this is what Paul feels, this deep sense of jealous love and care. Lastly, When we follow Jesus, we go, we see, we feel, and lastly, we we do something. We do something in response to this. And and I know we've only looked at two verses so far. (laughs) There's a lot more to go, but I'm just going to sum up the rest of this passage and not go through it uh, piece by piece. But but what does Paul do on, on his mission? He's angry. He's indignant. He knows better. So he could just come in with guns blazing, not literally. Uh, He could get everyone mad at him. He could get kicked out of another city because he seems to be really good at doing that. Um, But that's not what he he does. He, He gives us, I think, this incredible example of what mission looks like. When we go to people who don't know Jesus, is this compassion and, and a sense of understanding. He spends time with people. He meets them in the marketplace. He talks to whoever will talk to him. He endures mockery and misunderstanding. And he gets invited to speak to this council called the Areopagus. And he preaches a message that is trying, he's coming from a place of, I want to relate to you. I want to get to where you are so that you could hear what I'm saying for what I'm actually saying. He says, I've been walking around your city. I've been spending time here. And I can see that you're very spiritual. You're very religious. You're so spiritual that you have an altar to a God called the unknown God. Just in case you missed one, you want to cover all your bases. And here's what I want to tell you, that the God that you call unknown, I know who that is. I know who that God is. This God, he doesn't live in a temple even as grand as the Parthenon in Athens. He doesn't live in a place like that. He's the God who created everything. He created all things. So he's not the God of the sea. He's not the God of the sun. He's not the God of the mountains or war or beauty. He is the God who made all those things. This God that you call unknown, he's the sustainer of all life. He's not some impersonal force or far-off deity, but he loves and cares and sustains his 
creation. You call him unknown, but I know him. He's the sovereign ruler over all nations. He's the true emperor. He's the king of kings, this God that you call unknown. He is knowable. You're groping around in the dark, but he is not far from you, and I know him. He's the father of all humanity. He says even your own poets recognize this, that we are made in his image. We're made to be in relationship with him as a father is with his children. This God that you call unknown, he's the judge and the ruler of all things. He's the ultimate authority, and every one of us is accountable to him, he says. And finally, he says, this God that you call unknown, he is your rescuer. He's your rescuer. He isn't just waiting for you to mess up so he can judge you. This God came to save you, and his invitation to you today, Paul says, and we can say as people on mission, is to repent to turn away from idols, to turn away from worshiping these things that have enslaved us, and to turn to the God who is not unknown, to the one who's made himself known in Jesus. That's that's what we're called to do on Jesus' mission. We are called to do this, to, to make what is unknown known to people. We know who Jesus is. We know what he has done for us. And our task on mission is to, to let people know that. And, and we're not going to quote some Greek poets probably, but it is to look at the people in our life and say, how can I help them know what they don't know? How can I take what's unknown to them and make it knowable to them? And you have to care about people to do that. You have to listen to them. You have to love them. What we do must be motivated by the same love that sent Jesus into the world. Jesus' love was not self-righteous. He wasn't, he wasn't superior, even though he was superior. He was the son, he is the son of God. We rebelled against him. He's perfect and righteous, and what does he do? He comes into the world not in judgment, but in love, to give himself on our behalf. And that's, that's, that's our motivation for mission, is not to like, let's, let's declare with a megaphone how much we know about this, this God, and you better get on, on board, but, but to lovingly, passionately go to people with the good news of Jesus, to orient our lives toward other people. It's so hard to do that, right? You just, you're working, you have family, you have school. It's so hard to think. I haven't even thought about another person except for what's in my bubble for who knows how long. But Jesus is calling us to think and to look out, to see, right? To feel what's going on in our community, and to take his news to them, to do it, to declare and display who he is and what he's done for us. That's, that's what it means to be stirred. And that's what, that's, what we, that's what we want. That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for you, and I hope that's what you want. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize our lack of care for other people, our lack of love, our lack of 
just even longing to see other people know what they don't know. And I pray that today we would see this example of Paul and not just see it as a story that we can learn from, but as, as the picture of what we should be doing, each one of us. And, and I can't go toe-to-toe with a philosopher to talk about the reality of resurrection, but there are people in my life and there are people in each one of our lives who needs to know who Jesus is and what he's done for them. Would you help each one of us to have the courage and the love to break through our indifference and our comfort for the sake of others, just as you did, Jesus, for us. We pray it in your name. Amen.